kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 101 of Auntie Nanny. It's Monday night, it's slightly after 6 p.m., and it's another evening where my wonderful, vivacious, and happy co-host, Miss Jeannie Kay, is with me. Hi, Miss Jeannie, how are you? So she's laughing. That's good. <laughs> Are you all prepared for the storm of the century? Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Snow. I know. When, when you live north of the Mason-Dixon line, you're supposed to be prepared to handle this shit. It is only frozen, fluffy white rain. I know. Uh, yeah, I see. That's why I moved, you know away from the Mason-Dixon line. So I didn't have to be prepared for that. Just hurricane season. Um, and the best producer money can't buy because even if I had to buy him his expertise, I couldn't afford it. Barry, how are you this evening? I'm fine. Okay. Is Alex with us? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, first thing we're going to do is the CASA update because... Um, they deserve better effort than when I'm ranting and screaming about the new tax code. You know, it's always my fault when you start yelling and <laughs> not always. Um, oh, and we have Alex. Hello. Hi, Alex. How are you this evening? Good. How's it going? Good. Um, okay. Let me. Let's do this. Welcome to the weekly CASA update for January 26, 2015. Uh, with me, I'm, my name is Jan Johnson. I'm a member of CASA's board. With me is Alex Clark, who is CASA's legislative director. Um, thank you for joining us this evening. I understand you're having some wild weather there. Um, yeah, it's picking up. <laughs> they're, they're calling for two feet at some point tomorrow of snow. Oh, good Lord. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy for a major metropolitan area. Um, 
So is there any good news on the horizon? Um, legislatively, have we had any real victories? Uh, I don't. Well, um, I actually got a note from someone today uh, and actually somebody posted this up in our Facebook group um, nice. that SB 66 in Montana has been amended. Nice. Um, and I, I really just, I was taking the bus home and I only had a, I can only really read it on my phone, so I haven't um, combed over it. But uh, it looks like they uh, took uh, took the suggestions to heart and uh, have changed uh, the language in that. So it's no longer electronic smoking device. They're referring to these things as uh, vapor products or uh, alternative nicotine uh, systems or devices. Um, but anyway, it, they, they've kind of changed it around. Um, and I also didn't see anything in there about uh, licensing uh, or, or requiring uh, vendors to get a you know, tobacco retailer license. I'll have yeah. to confirm that, but um, it, it looks um, it actually looks like things got changed for the better. So uh, wow. Montana, way to way to go! Excellent, way to go, Montana. Good job. Um, and of, so- of course, also also in that uh, the uh, you know the people that are working on this have made friends with a lawmaker who is sympathetic to, to the vaping cause. Um, so, uh, it sounds like they've got a friend in the legislature there that's willing to, um, you know, help them out. And, uh, I got a, a hot tip that there's a couple more bills in Montana that we're going to need to keep our eye on. Oh no. Well, I mean, <laughs> um, once they start, they don't stop. Um, yeah. What what else is on the horizon, and what active calls to action have we got? <clears throat> um, well, I'm working on getting. I, of course, I, it took me longer to get home from work than I had anticipated. Um, but uh, uh, we're going to be releasing an update for New York okay. uh, tonight. Um, that is a uh, Assembly Bill. 2595, which is an indoor use ban. Um, there's uh, some good, some decent exemptions in here, which is kind of troubling because <clears throat> it makes it kind of a reasonable bill. Right. Um, it, it provides an exemption for, for vape shops um, and uh, kind of a weird exemption for uh, like expos, if you if you wanted to hold an expo, uh, you know you can you can do it in a facility, but it can only happen for two days in one calendar year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if they're really not concerned about loss of tax money, that exemption shouldn't be in there, or loss of of revenue, that exemption shouldn't be in there. So um, that tells me they know they're hurting themselves when they write these things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Of all the New York bills, this is the least crazy. Um, but, uh, <laughs> which, which unfortunately oh, makes it, makes it probably the most threatening. Um, right. so, uh, but yeah, you know, and but the, you know, our message of course to, to members is, you know, it might provide an exemption for your vapor shop, but thousands of other, uh, businesses would, would no longer have the, the right to set their own vaping policy. So, Alex, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, but 
I have, there is a local vape shop here. Um, well, not here, but local to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, and it's in New York State. And one of the owners contacted me and said, Jeannie, what do we need to know? And other than for me to be able to tell them, here is the proof on the bill, you need to contact us. Was there anything else I should tell them? Um, I mean, they were they were just kind of generally, what do we need to know about New York State legislation? Or was it? Yeah, you know, but you know, we needed to contact to talk to about it and... So I send them um, smart people. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, board at kasa.org is, uh, you know, Jan, myself, and Julie all monitor that email. So if they have a you know, specific question, absolutely send it through there. Um, otherwise, you know, we, we try to do a good job of kind of summarizing the issues of these bills, uh, you know, on our blog. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. No, it's, yeah. Um. So, yeah, board, board at casa.org. If you have questions or something you think we can help you with, um, feel free. Um, so, besides, okay, so that one bill in New York is less crazy. Is it less crazy than the Oregon bill, which is just... Oregon is... Oregon is multiple crazies, um, yeah. and that's uh, Oregon doesn't actually start its session until the second, so we're still a week away from Oregon uh, getting totally ramped up here. <laughs> um, we'll have we'll have other things pop up before Oregon. Um, okay. They're they're not so cool. Um, <laughs> we're looking at Vermont and Connecticut have both. Uh, introduce some very strange bills. Connecticut's um, really weird. It, just the just, just in, in general, or <laughs> no? The 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 bills I've seen that they've introduced are very strange. Um, the one really really short one is odd, and then they've introduced a other bunch of other ones related to just smoking. Um, and I noticed uh, Connecticut is planning to go after smoking in a motor vehicle with a child, which I don't know. Some of the cigalikes look a lot like cigarettes. So, you know, I guess that could, well, of course, you know, the, the, the state's answer to that is, uh, you know, if they were to pass that smoking bill, then of course they'd have to lump in electronic cigarettes because, problems confusion problems with enforcement yeah you can't Um, tell them apart at all yeah yeah Yeah. and that's a problem um is vermont doing their crazy usual crazy taxation thing i think it was last year they went for 99 percent of wholesale that's kind of what we're waiting for confirmation on um right now we're just looking at a flavor ban um, and Vermont is the Vermont is the strange one that is uh, only only allows for menthol flavor, um, it's not even the traditional tobacco menthol. It's it's just only menthol is that's that's your limit in, in Vermont. Um, bye bye so, Vermont uh, paper. 
Well, yeah, hopefully people will be able to see that that's an insane proposition. So, um, yeah, of course, and, and you know, we're, we're just holding off to see whether or not there's a possibility with, of tax getting included in this bill or um, possibly another bill being introduced. So that's Vermont. And then, of course, Connecticut has another. Connecticut's even worse. They want completely, <laughs> completely flavorless. Mm, that's yummy. That, that takes away the whole re- – for a lot of people who switched and liked it, that takes away the whole reason for switching. Why bother? You know, and especially if they're going to slap a punitive tax on it, why bother? I think the the one thing you can take away from all this legislation is you can look at it, you can read it, and you can tell it's never really been about health. Yeah, I think some of this is also – really depending on the state and Montana is probably going to end up being a good example, at least with SB 66. Um, you know, I think a lot of these folks just don't know, uh, they don't know enough about the products. They know they have to do something. They're probably, they've probably got, you know, health lobby, parent type lobby, people beating on their door saying, you know, protect my children. And they're just taking a stab. They're just taking a stab at it and trying to do something right. But, you know, they're just not. They're doing everything they're wrong. not familiar with the product. Yeah. yeah. And so, and that's, you know, that's one of the things, of course, that we advocate for is, is you know, putting the information in the hands of our members so that they can then go out and, and help to educate, enlighten lawmakers so that they can, you know. Yeah. Ho- hopefully not introduce any legislation. <laughs> <laughs> they, they absolutely have to, you know. Well, I, I I question whether they absolutely have to, but um, I I agree. Um, that's a big thing. Uh, speaking to your legislators, your local board of health, your mayor, um, the chance you have to do the most good in any sort of advocacy is at the very local level. And once it gets up to um, national, you, you're going to have a really hard time. Once it gets to statewide, it it's even harder. But um, the more local you can be when you're being proactive and, and speaking to these people, the better chances you're going to have of, of getting something amended or taken completely off the table. And there's nothing to stop you from at least trying. You know, and we should all really try. Preferably yeah. before something gets introduced. Um, that would be the way to go. But uh, life doesn't always work out that way. So, um, anything else, Alex, that you can think of? It's hard for me to say no. I mean, I'm looking at a list of at least 50 bills. Um, Mm -hmm. some of those we've already issued calls to action for, but, uh, um, there is, I don't know if it's going to come out tomorrow. Uh, it, it, it may, maybe tomorrow or the next day, but, um, a few of us have been having, conversations with a reporter from the Wall Street Journal who uh-huh. seems to be interested in taking a more kind of comprehensive look at the legislation this year. Um, okay. So I'm curious to see people should be on the lookout for that. And, you know, we'll see. Okay. Uh, curious to see if that'll be a good article or not. Yeah. Well, um, actually, it seems like the more traditionally conservative publications um, and even news outlets seem to cover the electronic cigarette issue a lot better than 
um, the the less conservative publications. And Wall Street Journal's pretty conservative. So, you know, hopefully the trend continues. Yeah. Um, and then off the uh, legislative angle, um, I think uh, we're, we're ready to put it out there that we've sort of redone our testimonials page. Yeah. It um, looks beautiful. And I will pop the link in chat. I think okay. we're still uh, working out some of the other link type issues, some of the, the nitty gritty web site stuff that nobody is interested in. Um, but uh, so our, our testimonials project is back. It's easier to read and uh, just a lot more accessible. So uh, I think we, I can't remember the last count. We had over 3000 people submit testimonials. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, and certainly we've, we've gained a lot more members since then. And, yeah. uh, and I'm sure, you know, hundreds of thousands of more vapors. So, uh, pass that around. Yeah. Um, share your story. Um, we're not anti, anti, anecdotes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so just, um, go ahead and share your story and share the website with friends. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming on tonight, Alex. Um, I'm going to let you go prepare for the rest of the storm of the century. (laughs) (laughs) So have a good night and thanks for visiting with us. Um, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Have a great evening. Likewise. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Did we get that? Okay. Okay. Um, so thank you, Alex. Uh, thank you, Kasa. Okay. Janie says, I only yell when she goads me into it. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Uncle Sam is coming after your savings. Earlier in the week, I discussed the Obama administration's proposal to tax earnings on so-called 529 college savings plans, part of a package of tax hikes that will pay for new programs such as this proposal to make the first two years of community college free. This has been touted as a plan to hike taxes on the rich to help the middle class, but in fact, it's more of a plan to redistribute money from the upper class to the lower middle class. As I noted then, this proposal is not going anywhere, not just because Republican congressmen will block it, but because it would be very unpopular with affluent blue state voters who currently vote for Democrats. About the only people I saw defending this particular idea were blue state singles who hadn't yet confronted the monstrous expense of shepherding. (sighs) Why does this do this to me? Can somebody pick up from of shepherding? Because Google Docs is freezing. Um, shepherding their progeny into a new Mandarin class to which they belong. Uh, Everyone else seems to be somewhere between confused and aghast. One, one comment. comment. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I could let you read this. No, you're it's it's your show. Oh. <laughs> 
One comment in particular struck me as I saw it several times on social media and in writings. How would you feel if they did this to Roth IRAs? Why did I find that particular question a compelling topic for a column? Because it's a question we may have to ask ourselves. As I observed when I first wrote about the plan, the very fact that we are discussing taxation of educational savings, redistributing educational subsidies downward, indicates that the administration has started scraping the bottom of the barrel when seeking out money to fund new programs. Why target a tax benefit that goes to a lot of your supporters and donors that tickles one of the sweetest spots in American politics, subsidizing higher education? And that will hit a lot of people who make less than $25,000 a year. That has become the administration's de facto definition of rich. Presumably because you're running out of other places to get the money. Yeah. The top tax rate on people who make more than $413,000, $464,000 for married couples is already 40%. That's on top of Medicare taxes, 2.9%, not capped, Social Security taxes, state and local taxes. In a deep blue area like New York City, these can amount to 10%, though you'd get some of that back by deducting state taxes from your federal tax. A marginal tax rate of about 45 to 50% in blue states, and possibly even more if you run a business. Capital gains are taxed at a lower rate, of course, but if you combine the Obamacare capital income surcharge for higher earners, and the administration's new proposal to tax the base rate to 28%, you're looking at a capital gains tax of almost 32% for people who make more than $200,000 a year, $250,000 a year for married couples. We're simply running out of room to pay for generous new programs with higher taxes on the, handful, on the small handful of people who make many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I'm not saying that it's impossible, politically or otherwise, to further raise their tax rates. I'm just saying that there's not all that much money there left to get. Yes, I know that tax rates used to be much higher in the middle of the 20th century. However, eye-popping high double-digit rates fell on a much smaller share of the population and therefore didn't raise all that much money. They were mostly symbolic, especially since they were combined with a much more generous array of deductions. Also, there's a reason countries largely stopped trying to enact such heavy tax rates. In an era when global capital gains and people move pretty freely, they turned out to be mostly counterproductive. This is also why we don't try to tax the bejesus out of capital income, much as we would like to. Old capital flees and new capital doesn't get formed as savers decide it's not worth it. What that tells us is that politicians will need to reach further down the income ladder in order to fund new spending. Indeed, to fund the spending we're already, we've already done in the form of entitlement promises. Where will they get that money? Once you've hit your fiscal capacity to tax the rich, a few big sources of tax revenue are left. A value-added tax. Very efficient and generates a lot of money because evasion is very difficult. It's almost self-enforcing. It minimizes economic distortion, and what distortion it does introduce encourages savings over consumption, and it's also highly regressive. So it's hard to see where the political support will come from. Progressives hate the regressively conservatives, the imposition of a large new tax that will squeeze a lot of money out of people. Raising income taxes on the middle class also raises a lot of money. The middle class mostly have salary income, 
And they don't have the ability of the wealthy people to shift their income between, say, capital gains and ordinary income. This will raise a lot of money. Note that the Bush tax cuts on the middle class, which were made permanent in 2010, cost about three times as much as those on the wealthy. It will also rile many millions of people who will make angry phone calls to their representatives. Three, tax the savings of the middle class. This could take many forms, lowering the dollar value of an estate that is exempted from tax, eliminate the basis step up that such estates currently enjoy, or start to pare back on the tax advantage savings like Roth IRAs and 529 educational accounts. Traditional IRAs and 401ks already have their withdrawals taxed as ordinary income, which will make it harder for the government to claw back the tax benefit they've already extended without outright seizing the accounts. This will also cause a mass freakout, but on a smaller number of people, since a surprising number of affluent people save very little of their income. The third option is the worst from an economic point of view. The last thing we want to do is discourage savings, given how little of it Americans do. On the other hand, it may be the most politically palatable. Does that mean you should forget the Roth IRA? thought a lot about this question, and the tentative conclusion I've come to is that to save you is that to save the money somewhere so you might as well put it in a tax advantage account yes i understand the temptation to implement plan grasshopper in the face of future tax hikes but before you pull the trigger i suggest you try to draw up a household budget living only on what you're likely to qualify for in the way of social security benefits i'd rather live comfortably with a higher tax rate than scrape along on what the government will give me and there are real benefits to a Roth IRA. I just I could go on and on. It just makes me crazy. And you wonder uh, why I buy fucking seeds? Well, I was getting there. Um, this writer talks about diversifying your money. Um, he and I have very different beliefs about economics and stimulus and planning. Um, he's a, a a member of the Keynesian School of Economics, and I am not. <laughs> so, what advice I'm going to give you is the same advice I always give you: real wealth will only be what they cannot take away from you. Seeds, food, things like that. Invest in your future survival. That will be the only wealth that truly matters soon enough. We're already seeing other countries de-dollarizing. We used to be the global currency. We're seeing other countries going, you know what? I'm going to buy oil in yen or I'm going to buy it in any other country's currency. Now, and also it might be sooner than you think. The yeah. stock markets have been taking a big hit since uh, the Greek elections. Yeah, well, you know, I was just... I watched that yesterday and I said... Okay, so basically the Nazi party came in third in Greece. Yeah. Yeah. So the Eurozone as this buffer that was going to provide peace and tranquility with economic stability is bullshit. Um, When the Nazi party comes in third and you have a shit ton more parties than we have in America, your country is really fucked really fucked um and i think they they 
flat out voted for a, a socialist party, which is their right. I mean, yeah. you can do that if you want to. Uh, and I understand the temptation to do that in Greece. I mean, my God, some of the proposals they've made in the last year yeah. for dealing with the unemployment rate amount to outright slavery of their own people. They wanted to take their young men, 18 to 25, and ship them out of Greece into as basically indentured servants to other countries. And then, <laughs> for everybody 18 and up who couldn't find a job, the government said that they would be proud to work for free. Yeah. Slavery. Well, I mean, the election was no surprise because the people right. voted out the idiots that got them in the state they're in. So, yeah. Because well, basically what happened in Greece, they gave themselves the earliest pension starts of anywhere in Europe. Oh, yeah. They gave themselves the highest minimum wage of anywhere in Europe, and it mm -hmm. was all on borrowed money. So when the financial crash happened, yeah, Greece had negative money. Well, I mean, Greece also lied to get themselves into the Eurozone. Yeah. I mean, they completely lied on their financials. But, you know, here's the thing. Um, the IMF and the World Bank, what they prescribe when they talk about putting a country on a diet creates fascism. Yes. It, it just does. I, I don't care what you say. It just does. And this is why I'm always saying we're really going to have to have a serious talk about money at some point. Because it's not what it used to be. It's not what we think it is. It's not that little piece of plastic in your hand. And it's not the dollar bills in your pocket. Uh, real wealth, real money, is stuff that has value. Yeah. That paper I mean, stuff can all be taken yeah. away. The worrying thing about Greece is, Syriza, the people that got voted in, were the ones that were saying, oh, we're just going to default on all the loans. And... Uh, that really will cause chaos. You know, Iceland did it. I, I'm kind of not understanding why we can't have a global write-down. Yeah. You know, I mean, just do they it did, globally. During the election, they did moderate themselves. Um, <laughs> they, they said they weren't going to write off all the debt. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, they won't get away with that because shit they owed so much money it makes Iceland look like a profligate yeah. country <laughs> well you know Iceland is the one country that's actually starting to seem to do well yeah you know not great but their their recovery is much further along than everyone else's and that's because they refuse to pay for the bankers debt yes. and we shouldn't have to in this country we shouldn't have to in your country you shouldn't have to no country on this planet, no, I mean, they, nowhere they, should have to pay for the debt of the fucking bankers. Go ahead. Yeah, and they're they're handing out bonuses to their board of directors and their CEOs in the millions and millions and mi I mean, if you added them all up, we're talking about billions of dollars that they're handing out in stock options and bonuses to these motherfuckers, and, and for being a failure at their fucking job. Yeah, I mean, it must have been a hell of a shock for the Icelandic bankers who, uh, well, some ended up in jail, yeah. uh, but loads of them had their assets seized to pay the debt, so, yeah. 
Well, I mean, and that's how it should be. You don't yep. go around like a spending like a drunken ass and expect the taxpayers to bail you out. Too big to fail is bullshit. People yeah. are too worried about the value of their homes. Fuck the value of your home. Really. If you own your home, good for you. If not... The, val- the value of uh, homes and land is an illusion. It's, it is. It's, yeah, because don't it's, pay your property taxes and see what the fuck happens. Yeah. <laughs> come take your house, even if it's paid yeah. for. We'll come yeah. take your shit. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you basically rent the land you live on. Yes. Even if you own your home. So, and it, governments can the, compulsory purchase anytime they feel like. Well, yeah, I mean that's basically back to the feudal system, is it not? Yeah, exactly. So, in essence, nothing has changed, but the entire world has changed. So we really have to have a serious talk about what money is. We have to. We have to, or we're all going to end up like Greece with the IMF bailing us out. And you don't want the IMF bailing you out. You really, you really, really don't. You know, you just don't. Austerity measures caused from World War One led directly to the events that led up to World War Two. People don't like hearing that. But when people are poor, all that stuff that they keep buried deep down inside all their little, I don't want to say racist tendencies because I don't think that's even it, but all the tendencies to see different people as other kind of stay buried because their basic needs are kind of taken care of. You've eaten, you've got a roof over your head, maybe everything isn't perfect, but your basic needs are met so you're not thinking like a freaking animal. When you take all that away, People start to think like animals. They start to blame others for their problems. It leads to exactly what you saw in Germany. Well, yeah. Uh, France was uh, hmm, very instrumental in the amount of money that Germany had to pay after World War One. They went way too far. Yeah. Well, all, all of that stuff... It's funny how history will teach you things you didn't really know. Like, I didn't know economic sanctions would lead to something like that. But they do. You look at when we started taking money from the German people, and then you look at when World War II happened, and you look at all the history leading up to that. People want to believe in someone who will save them. That is how Barack Obama got elected. I'm sorry to tell you, that is exactly how he got elected. People want to believe someone's going to come along and make everything better. That's bullshit. It can't happen. As a global society, it can't happen. On an individual level, it can't happen. You are in charge of what happens to you. I'm sorry. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um... But I, I do think some of the things I've said are true. I don't know. Um, I really like Senator Ron Wyden. And this is the third time I'm reading this story. 
this is the third time I'm reading this story in two years. So this is essentially the same story from essentially the same time last year. Senator Ron Wyden has introduced a bill to protect Americans from something many may not have realized was an issue, the government tracking their location through their smartphones. It's become almost an annual tradition for Wyden to introduce the bill, which, according to Wyden's office, creates a legal framework designed to give government agencies, commercial entities, and private citizens clear guidelines for when and how geolocation information can be accessed and used. Politically speaking, though, it means that law enforcement and intelligence agencies would need a warrant or court order to give them the authority to collect cell phone location information on American citizens. That's especially relevant. Oh, very. (laughs) We are about to launch Stingray. I think that's enough this week. That's especially relevant in the recent revelations of just how enormously popular stingrays have become in the U.S. Also known as IMSI catchers, stingrays mimic cell phone towers to trick nearby phones into sharing phones' location and other information. While their exact prevalence is a mystery, there are numerous confirmed locations of federal and law enforcement stingrays across the U.S. And there's actually a link to a map embedded in this. Wyden's bill is also a not-so-secretive nod to the fact that the National Security Security, Secrecy slash Security Agency had previously experimented with a program to track Americans' location in bulk through their phone signals. That information comes from a Freedom of Information Act request by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which compelled the NSA to reveal the program. It seems from those documents that the program has since been discontinued, right? Because the government always just stops doing illegal stuff. As we've said before, NSA spokesperson Vanny Vines told the Daily Dot in an email, the only domestic intelligence program that involves bulk collection falls under Section 215 of the Patriot Act, and it does not include geolocation data. A staffer at Wyden's office indicated to the Daily Dot that the NSA's discontinued program was at least part of what compelled the senator to re-re-re-introduce the bill. When asked if there were any particular NSA programs that compelled Wyden to create the bill, Wyden is a long-standing member of the Senate Intelligence Committee and has thus far more access to secret agency information than an average citizen. A staffer pointed to a former... NSA Director Keith Alexander's testimony to Wyden in 2013. Um, There's a clip in this story we're not going to play because it didn't link here, which which indicates the portion of the testimony the staffer referenced. Wyden asked whether the NSA has ever collected or made any plans to collect American cell site information in bulk. But Alexander insisted on reading straight from a letter by Director of National Intelligence James Clapper and would only say that under Section 215, NSA is not receiving cell site location data and has no current plans to do so. That specific wording leaves open the possibility that the NSA had a program in the past. Either way, if Wyden's bill were to pass, it would theoretically keep the NSA from starting such a program up again. 
The bill does have support from members of both parties and in both houses of Congress, though it's previously not gotten enough support to go forward for a vote. I like White. I do. Um, he's, he's different for a Democrat from Oregon. I'll put it that way. So no thoughts at all on that. Well, it's good he's uh, continuing to push it. But, um, year yeah. after year after year. <laughs> he's persistent. Yeah. Very tenacious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really wish someone would uh, send Senator Wyden the memo that uh, you can't change things from that far up. But nice try. Very yeah. nice try. Like that I said, plus I like the it. fact if the NSA really want to do it, they don't really give a shit what the law is. They've already uh-huh. proved that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And they're going to do what they want to do. Okay. The story comes from the Food Freedom Foundation. Domino's to Obama administration calorie rule is unworkable. Obamacare calorie regulation carries criminal penalties. See, I didn't know that, did you? No. Okay. The final Obamacare regulation forcing restaurant chains to display calorie information is causing headaches for companies that say it is, quote, impossible to comply with the new rule. Domino's Pizza, one of the regulator's most outspoken critics, said the rule from the Federal Food and Drug Administration is vaguely written and carries the possibility of jail time. Well, who the fuck knew that the FDA could be vague? (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't know they could jail you. Um, but, hey, I did know that they were armed with submachine guns. Because those cows. Yeah, those, those cows, man, they're, them, them cows are dangerous. <laughs> you know, they're just really deceiving people standing around all day munching on grass. They're, they're going to get you. They are full <laughs> of explosive chemicals. Mm. <laughs> well, that is true. Yeah, I'm not sure shooting them with a submachine gun will help them. No. I think that would cost... I've something. seen exploded care. It's not pretty. Oh, God. <laughs> How did I know you would have a story about that? <laughs> <laughs> All I say is, yeah, when cows eat the wrong thing, it gets messy really fast. Yeah, it's it's bad. They That's why they have stick stomachs. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to handle all that, but yeah, eating the wrong thing is bad for cows. Um, okay, Domino's Pizza, uh, jail time. Okay, essentially we think this rule is a kind of a disaster for everybody. Lynn Lytle, executive vice president of Domino's, told the Washington Free Beacon, not just pizza, but restaurants and anybody that's going to fall within this law, it's still not workable. One problem, Lytle said, is the final rule broadly expanded the definition of what qualifies for a menu. Under the rule, menu can refer to any writing that is used by a customer to make an order selection at the time the customer is viewing the writing, which could apply to advertisements. We no longer know what a menu is, Lytle said. It's really hard to interpret. Essentially, they're saying that anything that a consumer can look at and make a potential ordering decision from is a menu. She said this could also apply to flyers, ads in the newspaper, or signs in the window. If you take it to the broadest thing, it could be an ad on television. That makes it literally impossible to comply. 
Lytle said that the company agrees with the regulation's goals and has been providing calorie information for more than a decade. The company order already offers an online calometer that allows consumers to see the total calories of any pizza they order. A problem specific to pizza chains is the challenge of displaying a vast number of possible calorie totals across all of the materials that the roll potentially counts as a menu. Oh, Considering- God. Are you kidding me? No. Hmm. <sighs> Considering that Domino's customers can customize their own pizza, there's an endless number of possible combinations of toppings, each of which has a different calorie count. Lytle said a lowball estimate of combinations Domino's offers is $34 million. Pizza Hut has $2 billion possible combinations. Inherently, we're not against this. We're for it, Lytle said. We're for giving our customers information that they want and need. So if our customers want calorie information, then we will give it to them, and we do give it to them. We just want to try to do it in a way that makes sense, she said. Despite the fact that Rule runs 391 pages, I didn't sit down to read this one because I don't fucking care about this one, and addresses details such as whether a limited-time pumpkin spice muffin should be covered, it still does not give clear guidance about how restaurants are supposed to comply, according to critics. The rule, finalized in November, will affect chains with 20 or more stores. Unfortunately, once the sausage was made and all the stuff was finalized, it got homogenized into something the FDA felt was feasible for everybody, Lytle said. So they tried to force it into a one-size-fits-all, and I think that's where the problem began. It really should have been a let every brand do it in a way that suits their customers. The FDA has said it will issue guidance on compliance for companies before the rule goes into effect in December 2015, though the regulation remains vague on who is responsible for ensuring that calorie information is displayed, it carries criminal and civil penalties. They say there could be civil and criminal penalties for having incorrect calorie information, Lytle said. And not only is that frightening... That's also very unclear and invites a whole host of potential problems, not just for pizza, but for anybody that I can think of who is preparing food and selling it to the public. You can go to jail, according to the way it's written, if you somehow did it wrong. The final rule explains that failure to comply with the regulation will render food misbranded under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the FD&C Act, which carries criminal penalties. Violations of the law carry a maximum $1,000 fine, one year in prison, or both. If a person is convicted of a violation, a second violation will carry a $10,000 fine and up to three years in prison. According to the law, the U.S. government can also seize misbranded food. While technically the act carries civil and criminal penalties, it's not likely that restaurant owners will find themselves in jail given the FDA's approach to enforcement. The goal of the FDA is to work with the industry on menu vending machine labeling, said Jennifer Duven, a press officer for the FDA. The first step for the agency in helping to ensure compliance will be to provide guidance and technical support materials to the industry. This sounds so familiar, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Before the rules become effective, we intend to issue such materials and further reach out to the industry. We also intend to further coordinate with states and local governments. Doran added that the government could bring a civil action in federal court over violations of the FDNC Act. The FDA will determine the level of monitoring needed depending on our initial assessment of the degree of compliance and available resources, Doran said. 
Enforcement will be considered on a case-by-case basis depending on the specific facts and circumstances. Even if fines are not issued, the regulation is costly. Lytle said Domino's does not have an estimate of what compliance will cost her company, though interpreting a similar law in New York costs as much as $5,000 per store. The regulation is expected to cost industry $1.7 billion overall. Domino's is not going to stop pushing back against the regulation and is hopeful Congress or the FDA will revise the rule to make it easier to comply. We're going to continue to fight, Lytle said. We're going to try not to get issue fatigue because we've been working on this for a long time. Hope springs eternal. I still believe that somebody will listen to common sense. I don't. She does. Yeah. Yeah, same shit, different industry. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially the same story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is essentially the same story as what we're going through with impending FDA regulation of electronic cigarettes. Now, in the case of this food thing, if it actually gets enacted and doesn't get altered, Mm -hmm. people like Domino's, I mean, the only cost-effective solution for them really is to have set menus. Not allow people to customize anymore. Yeah, uh, I think the FDA doesn't like customizing anything. I think they don't like it for our electronic cigarette liquid. I think they don't like it for our batteries. I think they don't like it for food. Uh, And if they do, they certainly like to pretend that everything is much simpler than it is. And we know life is not simple. Yeah. And they they just love using wording that has multiple interpretations. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's and, bureaucrats everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, the FDA is really good at bureaucracy here. Uh, you know, they have I don't know who they've learned it from, but they're great at it. And um, scary. Well, they do I talk to transparency. the... Yeah. Oh, no, they're totally transparent. You just don't believe anything they're, they're telling you because they are actually blowing smoke up your ass. Yeah. Um... Believe the opposite of what they tell you, and uh, that's probably the right thing, unfortunately. Um, Well, I mean, we have all the calorie stuff in the EU, uh but yeah, they didn't make them put it on every single piece of literature that a restaurant has. The restaurant just has to have a copy on display in the restaurant. Well, we already have that here. Do you remember that, Jan? When McDonald's and them all had to do that? I mean, that was back in... Oh, I'll shut up, because it was a long fucking time ago. It it was, yeah. Well, McDonald's did that because of that giant douchebag, John Banzaff, from um, Ash US. He sued them. That's why McDonald's did it. But he sued them because of the freaking movie Super Size Me. Yeah. So that's why they did it. And now not every restaurant did it, but the ones that didn't want this asshole chasing after them, like a pit bull who's never eaten chasing after a squirrel, they all did it to just get him potentially off their backs. Because this guy would sue for anything. This guy sued for the difference in cost between a woman's haircut and a man's haircut, right? He says they should be absolutely equal. Or the fact that dry cleaning a woman's garment and a men's garment, there's a cost differential. 
well, yeah, okay, it's going to cost more to dry clean a woman's suit because skirts and pleats and all that bullshit that's on our stuff, men's suits are just simpler to handle. That's just a fact. You know, um, oh, God, he sued for a ton of stuff. That's what he did. He used to run a class at Georgetown University Law Center. I think he still does. Government and win? Or how does he uh, make corporations and win? Um, not so much that, but if you wanted to pass his class, what you basically had to do was you had to bring a lawsuit against somebody for some kind of discrimination. And <laughs> you, you would pass the class and he would get the money. So you sue him for discriminating against people that don't sue people that discriminate. <laughs> or something like that. I do notice Ash U.S. made him step down a couple of years ago, but he was the man who came up with the rule way back in the day to ban smoking on flights longer than four hours, which kind of led up to all the stuff we see here today. Um. Pretty interesting for a former Gene Kelly dancer on a cruise ship. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's destiny is different, I guess. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor stands up for the Fourth Amendment in drug-sniffing dog case. Holy crap. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments yesterday in the Fourth Amendment case, Rodriguez versus the United States. At issue is whether an officer unnecessarily prolonged an otherwise legal traffic stop when he called for backup in order to safely walk a drug-sniffing dog around the stopped vehicle. According to a previous Supreme Court ruling, the use of drug-sniffing dogs during routine traffic stops poses no constitutional problems so long as the traffic stop is not, quote, prolonged beyond the time reasonably required to complete that mission. According to Justice Department lawyer Ginger Anders, who argued yesterday in defense of the police, law enforcement is entitled to wide leeway when it comes to determining the amount of time that's, quote, reasonably required to conduct traffic stops. But that argument met with strong resistance from several members of the court, particularly Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Indeed, Sotomayor went so far as to suggest that the court's recent Fourth Amendment jurisprudence was flying off the rails due to its pro-police deference. Here's a sample of what Sonia Sotomayor told the government lawyer. I have a real fundamental question because this line drawing is only here because we've now created a Fourth Amendment entitlement to search for drugs using dogs whenever anybody stopped because that's what you're proposing. And is that really what the Fourth Amendment should permit? We can't keep bending the Fourth Amendment to the resources of law enforcement, particularly when the stop is not is not incidental to the purpose of the stop. It, it's purely to help the police get more criminals, yes, but then the Fourth Amendment becomes a useless piece of paper. This was not Sotomayor's first such defense of the Fourth Amendment. In fact, just last month, she cast a lone dissenting vote in Heinen versus North Carolina, in which the court's majority held that an erroneous traffic stop caused by a police officer's mistake of law did not amount to an unreasonable search and seizure, Yet as Sotomayor observed in dissent, police stopped Heinen on suspicion of committing an offense that never actually existed. The officer was wrong about the very law he was sworn to uphold. One is left to wonder, Sotomayor wrote, why an innocent citizen should be made to shoulder the burden of such police mistakes. 
which is pretty interesting. I kind of wonder what the Supreme Court would be like if it actually looked at the documents that our founders used to found this country and said, okay, we are going to rule based on them as written. Yeah. Well, at least as you apparently have one judge. of what is written. Yeah. At least well, you have one judge that seems to be paying attention. Yeah. Well, and I didn't expect it to be Sotomayor. I'll put it that way. Um, a lot of them think of the Constitution as a living document. And they interpret it very differently as time goes on. I'm not sure it was meant to be that. I mean, if that's supposed to be the basis of your jurisprudence and your lawmaking, your rulemaking, and that's supposed to be the one thing that you have standing between you and a government that can slam 9,000 rules a day at you, um, it just seems to me it should be interpreted probably as it was written. Although, you know, who knows? And how about instead of requiring restaurants to spend millions of dollars to tell you how many calories are in it, how about we go back to seventh grade and make home what we knew as home ec be reinstituted where they teach you about nutrition? Teach these fucking children nutrition when they're in school and they'll know that, oh my God, if, if I eat 20 pounds... Of sixty forty beef every day, I'm going to get fat. Yeah, I I've, I huge quantities of cheese on a pizza. Big, yeah, yeah, I know well, exactly how I got this big because I, guess what? My old teacher fucking taught me. Well, you know what? That's the parents' job. But um, also, I think the state should get out of the way. Why don't we let kids go outside and fucking play without calling the cops? How would that be? It was terrible. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember playing? Do you remember playing? I, I remember playing outdoors. Yeah, I remember. Well, we always had this. My mother had this rule: um, if if it wasn't thunder and lightning, um, you better be outside. Uh, we got. Well, my sister and I were were not good kids. Anyway, we were bad. We kind of we were pretty hyper. But um, yeah, we got an hour of TV a day mm-hmm. growing up. And my mother didn't care whether that was playing the Atari or watching MASH. You right. got an hour a day. And you needed to go play. So, I mean, that was our rules. You know, we had to go play. Um, I, I have many times said to Bernie, you know, and, and Bernie is a pretty active kid to begin with, okay? But I have said to Bernie... You've been up there in that Xbox. You need to go do something. What do you want me to go do? I said, I don't care. Go down, find some friends, run around town, do do something. Go do something. Get away from that fucking video game. But there's a lot of parents that don't do that now. There there really aren't. And I don't think it's the government's problem to to fix the fact that parents take video games for granted as a building babysitter. Um which in a lot of cases, that's exactly what happens. But that is the failure of the parents. This is why, you know, we have all of these people overseeing the safety and welfare of your children. Um, it, I mean, and it's stupid because now it's to the point where if your child is outside in your yard playing alone, CPS will come investigate you. And it's like, what? What? Yep. Well, the exercise thing, did you hear what they did in Finland? No. No. 
right? No, I they want to. they had the heaviest people in the world for quite a while. Um, <laughs> and what they did was they at school once the kid got to school, he wasn't allowed to leave till the end of the day. Uh, the lunch was provided by the school, so it was a healthy meal. And at break times, the kids were forced to go outside and run around. <laughs> and but, this has cured their obesity problem. Yeah, but... Okay. It's Parents. a bit extreme, but... Yeah, they had the highest heart attack rates anywhere. <laughs> right. A, a bit extreme? A yeah. bit extreme is parents who are trying to do the right things for their kids getting thrown into jail for it. Yeah. Telling their kids, go outside, you know, you're 7 and 12. Yeah, you can walk down the street together. You can walk across the street together, but you have to hold hands the entire time. Neither of you can be separate from each other. You know, uh, taking the children away from the parents in a case like that, and we talked about that last week, is really wrong. Yeah, and those parents are trying to do the right thing and being criminalized for it. I mean, children to have some confidence and to not be afraid of of the wind blowing is is a good thing. How how did we become so twisted that this is now a bad thing to teach your children? Well, well I'll give you an example. When I was in um, school, when we we're about fourteen, um, schools do trips in the UK. Now, I didn't go because my family was poor, but they had a trip to Paris. Um, and when we are in Paris, some muggers tried to mug one of the girls. Uh, but it didn't go too well for the mugger, because all <laughs> the boys beat the hell out of him and chased him <laughs> off. But you wouldn't get that with kids these days. They wouldn't know what to do. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. Um, A, your neighbors are too fucking focused on why there is a child walking down the street alone or, you know, someone who looks small and childlike is walking down the street alone and calls the cops. B, that's none of their fucking business. Really, it's not. If a child is not being attacked or molested or mauled by a dog, it really isn't any of your fucking business. For one thing. For another thing, I could. When I did the show with Karen Carey, which was like I, almost two years ago, one of the stories we did was about parents being prosecuted by the city for allowing their children to write on the sidewalk with chalk because they're outside playing. Chalk. Not, not chalk. Yeah. Non-hazardous, you could fucking eat it, chalk. Mm -hmm. And the parents couldn't grasp that. Why? Why? Why Why were they being... How, what caused this to happen? Well, people in the neighborhood saw that on the sidewalks and in the street and said it was an eyesore. So they called the cops and demanded they do something. And they did. They arrested the parent for allowing the child to do that and told them that it violated EPA was it water rules because it was going to discharge chalk dust into the water supply. 
I'm not. I couldn't make this shit up. Oh no, dangerous calcium carbonate. Oh no. Yeah, we we don't want minerals in our water. God damn it. Um, yeah. So this is a symptom of a sick society. All the way through, it's sick. From the politicians on down, it's sick. We expect the government to take care of us and everything, and and that's not realistic. We expect TVs to babysit our children, and that's not realistic. We expect the entire world to be happy and perfect and fine, and that's not realistic. And in a way, I think a lot of people that call the cops on little kids, I think they're scared. Not of the little kids, but of treating them like human beings. Because they're afraid they'll get accused of trying to molest or groom a child. Because that fear is out there. And all this stuff pretty much gets traced back to the media. If we're all afraid of each other, we're all scared of each other, and we're all sitting at home terrified. And we're not going to really have a real idea of what's going on in the world. We're not going to talk to our neighbors. We're not really going to have any friends. We're going to be hermits. And I think that suits the government just fine. Okay. Oh, this is not my favorite. In small town Mississippi, where poverty is endemic, transportation is limited, and a trip to the emergency room can lead to financial ruin, An alternative exists for those in the know. His name is Dr. Laudanum, Carol Fraser Laudanum. And even if your pockets are empty, the 88-year-old physician from Edwards, Mississippi, will schedule you for an appointment. For the last two years, Laudanum has been working without an office, but he's happy to meet his patients wherever they are. Sometimes the meetings occur in a home. Sometimes they take place in a parking lot. Other patients meet the doctor on the side of a quiet country road or inside his 2007 Toyota Camry. The location doesn't matter because Laudanum, a World War II veteran who has been in private practice for more than 55 years, believes it's his duty to help anyone who calls on him. I've always had a heart for the poor, Laudanum told the Washington Post this week, struggling to hold back tears. I grew up poor, and when the doctor would come to us and he was happy to see us, I pictured myself doing that someday. I try to not ever turn people away, money or no money, because that's where the need is. But his work may soon come to an end. Laudanum said he's being asked by the Mississippi State Board of Medical Licensure to surrender his medical license, which he's carried in his pocket with pride since Dwight D. Eisenhower was president. The reason for the request, according to Laudanum, is that the board balked several months ago upon learning he was operating his practice out of a car. At a recent hearing, Laudanum said he was labeled, quote-unquote, incompetent by the board. He said the charge is a catch-all, one designed to avoid citing a specific occupational violation, and he maintains he's done nothing wrong. He said he doesn't recruit patients and only responds to those who have nowhere else to turn. If you're going down a highway and someone is hurt in a car accident, you stop and attend to them, he told the Post. And if you're in a shopping center and someone is having a heart attack, you stop and help. It's your duty as a physician, and this is no different. A board of medical licensure investigation is now underway, according to NBC affiliate WLBT. 
The board's executive director, H. Van Craig, declined to confirm to the Post that an investigation had begun. In a brief telephone conversation this week, Craig said he could not publicly address complaints until and unless action is taken by the board. The mission of the Mississippi State Board of Medical Licensure, he said, is to protect the public. Laudanum's many supporters, who can be found throughout Edwards and for 50 miles in either direction, according to the doctor, say that's exactly what he's doing. Last week, supporters, some of whom are third-generation patients, <clears throat> sorry, began circulating a petition calling on the state board to allow Laudanum to keep his medical license. Karen Holt, an Edwards resident, told WLBT that she loves knowing the doctor is available. There's a lot of poverty in Edwards, she said. There are many, many people here who do not have transportation to Vicksburg, Clinton, and Jackson. And he truly serves a great purpose. And there are people who come to him who would not get medical treatment otherwise. Cornelius Mortley agreed, telling the station, he saved a lot of people. You know what I'm saying? I think he should be left alone and steadily serve the people. Regarding the WLBT story, Maggie Williams Divinity, a former registered nurse who said she'd worked alongside Laudam in the past, wrote, I beg the State, more, state Board of Medicine to allow Dr. Laudam to continue practicing medicine. He's one of the smartest physicians still practicing. His knowledge base is vast. His diagnoses are always on point, and he refers patients and always follows up with his patients. He cares about people, about treating them. He doesn't care about all of the billing, insurances, and Medicare, and all of the politics associated with medicine. He just wants to help people. He is still very sharp mentally at 88, probably because he did not let all of the political monopoly on health care stress him out by not continuing to partake. He is 88 years old. Let him do what he enjoys and at the same time continue to serve the community. Before moving his office out to his car two years ago, Laudanum operated his practice out of an apartment in a low-income housing complex where he found himself surrounded by patients, according to WLBT. Increasing gang violence, including two shootings that occurred just inside his clinic door, led him to fear for his safety and eventually convinced him to close shop, he said. My patients kept saying, don't leave, don't leave, and I started working out of my automobile, he told WLBT. Laudanum said he planned to find a new office, but never secured one. Still, the phone calls kept coming in. These days, he estimates, he sees three or four patients a week, many of them old friends he's been treating for years. A visitation starts with a phone call in which Laudanum tries to get as much information about the patient's condition and medical history as possible. Next, a meeting is arranged with the doctor driving as many as 50 miles to reach patients who can't come to him. Appointments might occur while he leans his head inside the cab of a pickup truck as it idles in a vacant parking lot. We're not in office, so we're dealing with just the immediate problem, he said, noting that many of his patients are on Medicaid. It's not a general physician, physical examination, but things like sore throats, flu symptoms, or skin rashes. I always told them, if you're not better from day to day, call me, and then I give them my phone number. Asked why he doesn't just retire, Laudanum, who doesn't have children, isn't married, and considers his patients the closest thing he has to family, offered his life story as an explanation. He grew up on a rural farm picking cotton during the Great Depression. After high school, he said he was drafted into the Navy, where he worked as a sonar operator on a destroyer in the South Pacific. A stint in the Air Force during the Korean War followed, and then medical school at Tulane University came next. By the mid-50s, he'd launched a private practice that has lasted for decades. After all these years, I still want to be like the small-town doctor who cared for us growing up, 
Dr. Corsi, Laudanum said. He was good and always happy. There was never a time when he treated anyone like they were not someone. And they're still trying to shut him down. Yep. Well, he's an old-fashioned doctor. He took the Hippocratic Oath. He and believes he in helping people, not in making money. Yep. Yepers. That one really gets to me. Not really sure what to say about it, but it really bothers me. But yeah, and that's where it comes down to. It comes down to they don't like the fact that he's giving away treatment for free. Yeah, well. So it's what, let the poor die? Yeah. No, that's unacceptable. And yeah, it's got flaws, but that's why people in the UK support the NHS. Because it's yeah. free. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, can't have everything, but when it's all about profit, um, stuff like this happens. Yeah. It's not the, the I've seen other stories like that over the years um, from various countries. But yeah, oh, he hey, should I just, you, you should buy a second-hand ambulance and practice out of that and see if they still say the same thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think the man is rich. Um, let me just touch on some practical things. At 88 years old, if he were not competent, he would not have his driver's license. You know, they would take that away from him. I That's not they true. Haven't. Well, you know, generally speaking, driving 50 miles to get to people, the chances of you getting in an accident are pretty high. You know, if you're not steady and you can't move well, you know, and, and your reflexes are not what they once were. But I don't know. Because my father, my father is 77 years old now and uh, been a paraplegic since he was 19 years old. And um, I'm not riding in a car with him. <laughs> <laughs> but he still has a driver's license. But I'm not riding in a car with him. I love him. I love him dearly. But I am not riding in a car with him. Well, that, that'll be one of the tricks they'll probably use against this poor old doctor at some point. If they don't get their way, they'll probably take his license away. His driving license, they'll say, oh, you're too old now. Yeah. I really hope not. I mean, I think these people desperately need this care. Yeah. And here's someone who wants to do it for them. Why stop him from doing that? I've never understood that. Why stop someone from doing what they love when what they love is essentially serving their fellow man? I, I just don't get it. Well, that, and he's, he's hardly impacting heavily on the medical system, is he? If he only sees three or four people a week. Mm-mm. No. But it was perfectly okay to have people get shot inside his doorway. That was fine. As long as you can, you can keep treating people, even if it's under dangerous conditions. I don't understand that. Oh, oh well. Um, here's a fun story. This will take about an hour to read. And I cut like three quarters of it out. 
I think I'll skip. Okay. I'm skipping. Um, did did okay I don't I didn't put it in here but there was something about the snoopers charter in the UK did anybody see that no ma'am no 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 okay now now you're gonna have to make me go get it <laughs> <laughs> damn it um but I guess first I'll do this. Uh, secret TTP negotiations and public protests to be held in New York City. The next round of the secret Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations begins this Monday, January 26th, and runs through the following week at the Sheridan New York Times Square Hotel in downtown Manhattan. As with many previous TPP meetings, the public will be shut out of talks as negotiators convene behind closed doors to decide binding rules that could impact how lawmakers set digital privacy in the decades to come. Big content industry interests have been given a privileged access to negotiating texts and have driven the U.S. Trade Representative's mandate when it comes to copyright, which is why the TTP carries extreme copyright measures that ignore users' rights. Some claim that this could be the final round, final official round of TTP, TPP negotiations. The White House and congressional lawmakers are now hard at work to pass a law to fast-track this agreement and other secretive deals through Congress to ratification. Fast-track, also known as the Trade Promotion Authority, TPA, would transfer Congress's power over trade policy to the president by preventing them from debating or modifying the terms of trade deals after international negotiations are finalized. The countries negotiating the TPP with the U.S., are willing to give in and agree to bad copyright rules as long as they get the other gains they were promised. Things like market access and lowered tariffs so they can sell their products to U.S. consumers. But those other countries will not budge without a guarantee that the overwhelming public opposition to the agreement won't pre- prevent its adoption in the United States. Fast Track offers that guarantee. That's one reason the White House is now desperate to pass it. Several public interest groups are organizing a protest outside the luxury Sheraton Hotel this Monday, January 26th at noon. That would be today. Many of those demonstrating will be there to oppose other provisions in the TPP, but we encourage people to be there. Well, uh, yeah, that's probably not going to happen with the weather. Um, To represent all other users around the world who will be impacted by this massive agreement's draconian policies. If you are not in the New York area, you can take action now by signing this petition to Senator Ron Wyden, calling on him to stand up for digital rights and oppose any new fast-track bill. You can also give him your message directly by phoning in his office at 202-244-5244. If you have already signed this petition, contact your elected representatives and let them know that you want to oppose fast-track for the TPP and any other secret deals that put users' rights at risk. Um... Let me see if I can copy this and stick it up in chat so other people can read it. But yeah, there's there's been a fair amount of uh, protest against the TPP in Europe. Uh, there should be. Yes. Uh, horrendous. Mainly, mainly because, of course, the European Parliament does have actually have a pirate party. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so they've been making a lot of noise about it. But yeah, the public, as usual, are basically just ignoring it. It's almost like you're telling people stuff and they're going, well, I don't care, it won't affect me. Well, it will. It's going to affect what prices for medicine are, what prices for food are, what you can eat, what you can drink, what you can listen to, what you can wear. It's well, going to things affect like, everything. Um, I believe the new regulations basically state, which is something that Apple have been uh, playing with for years on iTunes, that mm -hmm. the digital copy of something you just bought doesn't actually belong to you. Well, it That's doesn't. That's in there. I mean, for it doesn't. For all digital <laughs> stuff. Which, so, which is yeah. ridiculous. Okay. Stuck a link in the chat. I'm going to read it, even though it's not in here. Uh, Britons, we have three days to kill the new Snoopers charter. The all-pervasive spying bill that was struck down in 2012 is back. The Lords have slammed a version of it into a set of amendments to an anti-terrorism bill that's already in progress. And if we don't stop it, the government will have the legal right to spy on everything you do online and use it however they want. Lords Blair, King, West, and Carlisle are responsible for this sneak attack, introducing their amendments on Thursday for the debate this Monday if they get their way. Your ISP will have to retain a record of everything you do online and turn it over to police or spy agencies without a warrant. Parliament has already looked at these proposals just a couple of years ago and found them to be rubbish, dangerous, expensive, and ineffective. Many parliamentarians are royally pissed at the lords who have capitalized on the deaths of the Charlie Hebo victims who died as martyrs to the cause of free speech to take away the right to a private life, an essential prerequisite for a meaningful debate. If you don't have the right to privately discuss issues with the people you trust, you can't effectively field those arguments in public forums. Many of the lords recognize this, but with only days before the debate, we must get them to show up on Monday, that would be today, or yesterday, <laughs> and beat back this craven, opportunistic attack on core domestic values. So, here's a link to the EFF campaign. I'll stick it in the chat. Yeah. Yes, I was sort of familiar with it, but I haven't seen the article. But, yeah. Um, but again, public have been happily ignoring this sort of stuff. <laughs> you know, I almost feel like a broken record. I yeah. feel like every week I'm telling people the same thing. Over and Although, over again. thankfully, in the case of this proposal, it is so badly sort of assembled there's no way they could assemble the information that uh, this bill would require. The ISPs can't track all that information. Um, you know, I don't think they should let people in Parliament, in my government, in your government, I don't think they should let these people write legislation about things they don't understand. Yeah. They shouldn't be writing legislation covering smoking, electronic cigarettes, privacy rights, copyright, any of that stuff. Well, this, Computers? this particular one, I mean, if ISPs did start tracking the way they want them to, mm -hmm. uh, you'd have such a slowdown in your internet connection. 
you'd know they were doing it. <laughs> yeah. Because every single computer connected, oh, computer, phone, tablet connected to the internet, they want to track it all live. <laughs> the internet had collapsed. Um, <laughs> well, that doesn't stop them from asking for stupid crap. Yeah. <laughs> Which they kind of always do. Um, I said I would talk a little bit about Finn Fisher. And that was the story I skipped over because it's so fucking long. Um, a Spy in the Machine. How a brutal government used cutting-edge spyware to hijack one activist's life. In November 2005, during the dead of night, five black cars pulled up in front of the home of Musa Abad Ali Ali. I did it. The Yay. doors opened and a group of men stepped out. They could have been officers or maybe they were just hired muscle. muscle. Such distinctions aren't always clear in Bahrain. But Musa knew they were sent by the government and they had come for him. Musa was just 24 at the time, but he had already become a prominent anti-government activist within the small kingdom of Bahrain. He'd spent years protesting for equal employment rights and had been jailed and tortured on several occasions. When the cars pulled up outside his home that night, he had just served a nine-month prison sentence on charges that were never revealed to him. The men barged into Musa's house and dragged him out into the streets of Al-Akar, Al-Akar, a seaside village where he lived with his wife and his young son. They took him to a quiet, darkened alley and took turns beating him. Then they raped him. If that didn't stop his activism, they told him, they would do the same to his family. Musa didn't leave his house for a week after the assault. On December 21st, 2005, he fled for London after narrowly sliding by Bahraini security forces at the airport. If I stayed in Bahrain, I would have died in prison, he said. I am sure of it. He hasn't been home since. His torturers were now thousands of miles away, or so he thought. Musa became an activist at the age of 14 when he saw one of his favorite teachers being carried away in handcuffs by a group of policemen. He was politically naive at the time, but the teacher's arrest lit a fire. Days later, he joined his very first protest, an act for which he was held at gunpoint in his home and sent to jail for five months. Now 33, Musa has spent most of his life campaigning for democracy and equal rights in Bahrain, a Middle East island nation of 1.3 million that has been ruled by the Khalifka family dynasty for more than 200 years. He's been jailed seven times. Not a small number, he says, and has endured brutal torture and assault at the hands of Bahraini officials. Bahrain's government has a long and dubious human rights record, especially when it comes to free speech. Even the smallest forms of dissent are regularly met with severe punishment, and the crackdown has only intensified following the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011. This month, a prominent activist was sentenced to six months in prison over tweets that were critical of the country's defense and interior ministries. Bahrain has also been a longtime ally of the United States, and particularly the U.K., a relationship the kingdom has maintained despite ongoing unrest. That's why Musa fled to London. If he couldn't continue fighting from Bahrain, he could at least do it from Bahrain's closest and historically most important global partner. Bahrain was effectively a British protectorate until 1971. 
He was granted asylum in 2006. His wife and child joined him a year later, and for a while, it seemed as if he was finally safe. He found a job as a cameraman for a Bahraini news agency and embedded himself within London's community of exiled activists. He was definitely still on the Bahraini government's radar. His high-profile demonstrations and sizable social media following made sure of it. But he was finally free to protest, and his tortures were now thousands of miles away. Or so he thought. One day in 2011, Musa opened his Facebook Messenger app on his iPhone. What he saw was chilling. Someone else typing under his name to an activist friend of his in Bahrain. Whoever it was kept posting personal questions, prodding for information, and Musa watched it unfold right before his eyes. He panicked. It was like, what's going on? What's happening, he recalled. He changed his password, alerted his friend, and stopped using Facebook Messenger, but the intrusions kept coming. In another instance, Musa noticed that someone posting as him solicited his female Facebook friends for sex, part of an effort, it seemed, to blackmail or perhaps defame him. In Bahrain's conservative media, Facebook was only the beginning. Unbeknownst to him, Musa's phone and computer had been infected with a highly sophisticated piece of spyware, built and sold in secret. The implant effectively commandeered his digital existence, collecting everything he did or said online. Upon his arrival in London, Musa had become an unofficial archivist for his activist community, obsessively documenting every protest and broadcasting his videos to a large group of YouTube followers. Whenever something happened back in Bahrain, he'd receive a flurry of images and video footage from contacts and disseminate the content online into media outlets. Now, whoever was behind the hack had access to all of his accounts, emails, documents, and a massive trove of videos. They could even control his computer's webcam and microphone. An investigation would later reveal that Musa's online life was hijacked for eight months. All signs point to Bahrain as the culprit and Finn Fisher, a mysterious spyware tool for hire, as the weapon of choice. It was May of 2012 when Morgan Maki Boyer first got the package from Bahrain. He was working on Google's incident response team at the time, protecting high-risk users from state-sponsored attacks. He's since become a security director for First Look Media. Along the way, he'd seen a lot of spyware being sent after protesters during the Arab Spring. Most of the implants he ran into were easy to spot and remove. But this one, arriving in a protected attachment from Bahrain Watch, seemed more complicated. Following standard procedure... Maki Boy sent the program running in a virtual machine, essentially a fish tank where he could watch the virus at work. He watched the virtual machine's working memory, keeping his eye on the software as it stretched its legs in the new environment. Then, without warning, the implant disappeared. That got his attention. I thought, oh, we have a player here, he recalls. It was the sign of a more sophisticated author at work. The implant used a technique called process hollowing, injecting its own code into a program that's still running in order to use the legitimate program as cover. Digging through the working memory, he found the implant hiding in WinLogonExe, and he could see the new files that had rushed in to replace the old ones. One line of code stuck out, left over from a file path on the implant developer's computer. Y slash LSVN slash um, understore branches slash FinSpy v4.01 slash FinSpy v2 
I could read the rest of it, but I'm not going to. I thought, Finsby, that rings some bells, he recalls. Holy shit, I think this is Finn Fisher. Finn Fisher had become a kind of boogeyman in the security community since brochures advertising the software capabilities popped up in a WikiLeaks drop in December of 2011. Finn Fisher could purportedly empower its owner with the kinds of advanced intrusion techniques usually reserved for the NSA. There was a certain amount of interest just because no one had seen it, Marquis said. All we had were these leaked documents. Finn Fisher was created and sold by Gamma International, an international surveillance company with offices in London and Frankfurt. The Gamma brochures promised remote monitoring and key logging. They even said they could listen in on a target's Skype calls in real time. It's the kind of technology that could be subject to international export restrictions, like the Wassinger Agreement, so finding it in the hands of Bahraini government would have been a major diplomatic issue. But so far, no one had been able to pin the program down in action. When Arab Spring protesters found evidence of Finn Fisher used by the Murbat government in Egypt, Gamma simply said the software had been stolen. No one has ever been able to prove otherwise. But now McKee had found and caught a Finn Fisher sample in the wild, and thanks to the League of brochures, he had a road map of everything the implant could do. The implant divided its task between different modules. Like a crew of bank robbers, one module would break through a security device and then deploy another module to lock keystrokes, collecting the target's passwords. A third module took screenshots of the desktop, catching anything the subject might be looking at. A fourth module encrypted the data into a unique file format, so anyone looking through a hard drive wouldn't notice this device was recording anything. Once the data was safely encrypted, the implant would send the file back home to its command server. In this case, a server at Bahrain's National Telecom. Maquis enlisted the aid of Claudio... Oh, my God. <laughs> a man named Claudio, a researcher at a security firm, Rapid7, to further explore the software. The two uncovered a mobile version of the implant, which had come in different versions for iOS, Android, and even Symbian, like a hot startup trying to cover up as, cover as much of the market as possible. The new platform enabled dangerous new features like tracking targets through GPS and pulling contacts directly from the phone's memory. There were specific modules for popular chat and VOIP apps like WhatsApp and Viber in case you tried to escape by running to a third-party service. You could even activate the onboard microphone to listen in from your pocket. We talk about how the government's dangerous. Um, okay. I, uh, once the implant was installed, your phone effectively became an enemy agent. I'd be working at my computer and start squinting at my phone, thinking maybe I should turn that off, Maki said. It produced this weird dissonance between me and this device that I carry around all the time. Then there were the command servers themselves. After studying the implant, McKee and the others were able to recreate the fingerprint it used when it phoned home to the command server, which gave them a new way to catch Finn Fisher in the act. Why not send the ping into the wild and see how many servers answered? If it worked, it would show them all the Finn Fisher installations running on the open web. But finding that out also meant sending out a ping to billions of IP addresses at once, which also meant finding an Extremely un understanding traffic provider. I remember telling providers, 
I want a big box with a lot of bandwidth, he said. Most assumed he wanted it for criminal purposes rather than to catch hackers in the act. We finally found a provider I was able to explain it to, and they still accidentally shut down the box halfway through. After a few false starts, the pings went in and out, and the team waited to see what would come back. Instead of a few outposts, they found an army. Finn Fisher's agents were everywhere. Japan, Germany, India, Serbia, Mongolia. There were even servers in the U.S. It was an atlas of personal invasions. All told, 25 countries hosted a server of some kind, each hired out to a different regime and pointing the x-ray at different enemies of the state. But while he could see Finn Fisher's control servers, Boyce still couldn't see who they were working for. One server was on the official government grid of Termekistan? which made it easy enough to guess who put it there, but who was behind the four higher servers in the U.S.? When they listened in, who did they hear? The web is a busy place, and it keeps many secrets. A scan can't dig up all of them. McKee published the work in a series of three landmark papers from July 2012 to March 2013, each titled with a cheeky Bond pun like The Smartphone Who Loved Me or You Only Click Twice. The papers laid out everything he knew about Finn Fisher's network, revealing a global surveillance network that was being hired out to some of the world's most regressive, repressive governments. Targeted exploits weren't just the NSA anymore. And they weren't just for the NSA anymore, sorry. They were available to anyone who could pay for them. Once the papers were published, Finn Fisher went back underground. The coders behind the program began to change its routines and file names enough to let it slip by unnoticed. Soon the servers weren't responding to the name call McKee had sent out. They had a new procedure now, new passwords, and they knew they were being watched. McKee had gotten his glimpse of the network, but then it knew it had been spotted and sank back into the shadows. Still, McKee's investigation had dug up enough for a definitive case that Finn Fisher had been used against Bahraini activists in London. That left two awkward possibilities. Either the British government had approved Finn Fisher for export or Gamma never reported the sale. The first option would mean messy publicity for UK officials, revealing that the government had facilitated the ongoing persecution of refugees. The second would be even worse, putting Finn Fisher and other programs directly in the crosshairs of British trade enforcers. And if Gamma violated the UK's hacking laws, the fallout could be even greater. In August, the humanitarian rights group Bahrain Watch published new evidence suggesting that Bahraini governments had been using Finn Fisher to conduct surveillance on prominent Bahraini lawyers, activists, and politicians, both in Bahrain and abroad. According to information from a massive data leak, Gamma not only sold Finn Fisher to the Bahraini government, but actively worked with the regime to remotely access and monitor the computers and smartphones of opposition activists. Gamma did not respond to multiple requests for comment. In the UK, Musa Ali Ali was one of three Bahraini exiles allegedly targeted by the government, together with Jafar al-Hassabi and Saeed al-Shabali. The devices all three men were the devices of all three men were infected in 2011, but the extent of the breach didn't become apparent until recently. Musa, Jafar, and Saeed represent three different generations of Bahraini activism, but they're all fighting the same fight. Jafar Tolensoff spoken has devoted his life to campaigning against widely documented 
human rights violations committed by the Bahraini government and has been living in exile in in London since the mid-1990s. Saeed, a London-educated engineer and prominent opposition figure, acts as the elder statement of the group, professional and eloquent with thinning gray hair. All three have been imprisoned and tortured in Bahrain, Jafar as recently as 2010, and all three have had their Bahraini citizenships revoked. In London, they're part of a tight-knit community of Bahraini activists who orchestrate protests, petitions, and other events to raise awareness about the ruling family's abuses and what they see as tactic complicity on the part of the U.S. government, on the part of the British government. Even in the U.K., Musa and his compatriots are physically harassed by groups they believe are connected to the Bahraini regime. The three were attacked in alleyways following a demonstration in 2009, the same year the arsonists laid siege to Zaid's house in the dead of night. But they never thought a UK firm would actively work with the Bahraini government to monitor them in a country that was supposed to keep them safe. What we didn't expect is that they would go that far. By really intruding into our private lives, Saeed said over tea at an Islamic charity he runs in central London. Where of endangering their families or other activists in Bahrain, the men have learned to keep politics out of their conversations and have curtailed their social media activity to varying degrees. We feel that we are not safe, Jafar adds. It limits how we talk and what we can say. Using Finn Fisher, the Bahraini government effectively undermined the asylum Musa and his compatriots were granted in the UK. The kind of cautionary tale of corporate state surveillance that has become increasingly common in recent years. Ultimately, the men were lucky. Finn Fisher was detected and wiped from their devices, and a watchdog is pushing for an investigation on their behalf. But while Musa and his friends recover, Finn Fisher is gathering new targets in new countries. Many of them maybe may not be as lucky as Musa. So, and that went on like for four more pages. I couldn't possibly read it all. Like you said, if the government wants to do it, if the NSA wants to do it, if anyone wants to do it, they'll find a way. Yes. But that's, um, yeah, Finn Fisher is very notorious. Um, and as the expert in the story said, it's an incredibly well-written um, virus, basically. Um, it's what you call a root kit. It installs right. itself in the operating system. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Very hard to detect and very hard to get rid of. Yeah, well, especially now that people don't know exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, I guess I, I, I wish my dog would stop barking. I guess I wish I could offer people a little bit of advice about don't open email attachments from people you don't know. I mean, that might help, but I don't know. Well, in I the case know. of Finn Fisher, it wouldn't have come in that way. It was deliberately targeted into their device. Um, it was put in live, shall we say. They didn't have to click to open anything. Scary thought. Yep. Be careful out there. Really careful out there. Be safe. I mean, antivirus only does so much. So yeah, you know. And I guess the question is always, how much privacy do you really have? 
something like that, you have none at all. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the bit that should horrify people is the bit that they they were actually posting us in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is far more common than people think. That's what a lot of hackers like to do. Um, Scary. Very, very scary. Um, So, yeah. I guess the last thing I would say tonight is be really careful, especially if you're any kind of activist. Be really careful, please. You don't want to end up like that. You definitely don't want Grim Fisher on your stuff. And there's other stuff out there too. We just haven't, we just haven't had time to cover it all yet. Well, that's just one security firm's uh, yeah. software. So yeah, there's others there's, available. There's plenty more, and I'm sure we'll talk about many, many more of them in the months to come. On that happy note, advert. Advert. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. AmmoSeek.com My husband says, lead is the new gold. AmmoSeek.com uh, <laughs> Yeah, I agree with Dan. Yeah, <laughs> I knew you would. Um, I think that's it for tonight. That's about all I think I can stand. Um, don't be afraid just be really careful. Be careful out there. Take care of yourself. Stay safe. And we'll see you next week. Good night, guys. Thanks for listening.